Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to this Bible study. This one is going to be a doozy. I am going to no doubt upset the guys out there and the girls out there because we are going to be talking about Christian marriage and the call that the Bible and God has for a successful Christian marriage is a very, very high call. Um, the bar is set incredibly high. In fact, it's impossible um, for either the girls or the guys to be able to fulfill all the requirements uh, that, that God puts out for a successful Christian marriage. But we're going through the book of Matthew and we're on Matthew 19 and Jesus's question about marriage and about divorce. And so where you're at in life is where you're at in the Bible. And so that's what we're going through right now. And so that's what the talk is on. Uh, this talk is not just for married people, though it's going to have the greatest benefit for Christian couples that are marriage, married, because that's who this is addressed to, is to um, a husband and a wife that are both Christian. But if um, you're not yet married or don't know if you'll ever be married, there's still a lot of stuff that you can learn in here, uh, learn in this. Uh, about what the Bible has to say about Christian marriage. If you are divorced, there's still a lot that you can learn from this. And if you are going through troubled times in your marriage, there is so much that you can learn. Um, marriage is an institution that was created by God for our benefit. We're going to talk about that. But before I get into Matthew 19, why don't you bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you'll speak through me and that you will be with each person and each couple as they listen to this. Marriage is one of the most challenging things that, that we will ever do, but it can also be one of the most rewarding things. And I will pray that, I pray that um, those that are listening right now will have um, open ears to hear the words that you would say to them, and a soft heart and a soft mind to receive um, your direction for them. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why don't we open up to start out with, uh, we're going to open up to Matthew 19. So open up your Bibles. I would recommend uh, this would be a good one for taking notes. I'm going to be jumping all over the place um, and we're going to have lots to, to go through. So let's get going. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, which is on the previous page. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea, on the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So let me give a little uh, background. For those of you who have been with us as we've been uh, going through the book of Matthew, um, a, a, a pattern that you're seeing, a constant thing that is happening in this, in this time frame is the Pharisees are challenging Jesus at any point they can. We read earlier, uh, several weeks ago, that the Pharisees now are trying to come up with any reason they can to have Jesus killed. Why? Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are a religious group of Jews. They are the religious elite um, they believe that they believed that they were um, the best of the best. They were incredibly prideful. Um, they followed the Torah, the first five books of the law, the law, as well as the um, uh, 
vocal or oral tradition or the oral, oral Torah, which is also called the, uh, the traditions of the elders, which was passed down orally in addition to the actual books of law. Um, God does say through the Abrahamic covenant that the Jews are his chosen people. And the Pharisees took that to heart. They believed that because they were descendants of Abraham and of David, um, that they were better than everybody else by far. And because they specifically followed all of the laws, they were very legalistic and followed all of these rules, both the oral rules as well as the specific rules in Leviticus, Exodus, etc. They believed that they were the top echelon, and they were incredibly prideful as a group. Um, they were the top echelon in society, in Jewish society. So people would uh, part ways for them as they would walk through the streets. Jesus ruined that. He came in and completely flipped the apple cart. He um, had more harsh words to say for the Pharisees than he did for the Romans. The Romans were occupying Israel at that time. They were enslaved, basically, by the Roman rule. And yet Jesus, of all the things that he has harsh words against, it's against the Pharisees because they knew the scripture but they were so prideful in their adaptation and understanding of it that they made it all about themselves. So they really did not like Jesus because all of a sudden he called them whitewashed tombs and, and vipers and snakes and he had these horrible things to say about them, which was true. So they're trying to find ways to, um, ideally they would love to have him killed and just taken out of the, the, the picture, but also to dis discredit him. So the questions that they ask him it's not that they honestly want to know about marriage and divorce and what's lawful. What they're doing here is you need to understand at the time, marriage, there was a, a debate uh, going on and there were two sides of this debate. Jews believe that you could divorce your wife and that the differing views on this though, there is one school of thought that was called the uh, Shammai uh, school of thought, which was the conservative group, which they believed that uh, the only reason why you could ever divorce, uh, that you could get a divorce, was for something that was really, really bad, and an example of that is adultery. Uh, the other school of thought is the school of Hillel, and their perspective was is that you could divorce uh, your spouse, um, specifically the husband could divorce his wife, um, for pretty much anything, and, and the definition was if she was unclean. And it was so wide open, the definition, that uh, if she burned your food, your wife was unclean and you could divorce her. If you saw a beautiful woman and you lusted after her and wanted to be with her rather than your wife, well, your wife was clearly not doing her duty by you, and therefore she was unclean and you could divorce her. So these are the two schools of thought. One important thing to note if you remember, not far ago, we're in Matthew 19, Matthew 14, John the Baptist was killed. He was beheaded. Why? He was beheaded by King Herod Antipas. Do you remember why? It was because he had such harsh words and condemnation for his marriage to Herodias. If you remember, let me just back up a little bit and, and give you a little bit of an explanation of this. So King Herod the Great, is a ruler that was put in place by the Romans to rule over the Jews. Uh, and when he died, he divided up his kingdom. King Herod Antipas is his son. So um, John the Baptist um, had really harsh words to say about his marriage to uh, Herodias. Why? Who is Herodias? Herodias 
was King Herod the Great's granddaughter, which makes her what to Herod Antipas? Her niece, his niece. In addition to her being his niece, she was married to his brother. And she was living in King Herod's uh, Antipas' home. And King Herod Antipas divorced his wife and convinced um, Herodias to leave his brother and to be united with him. So, I mean, you have incest and you have uh, Herod Antipas divorcing his wife so that he could be with another woman. I mean, it was just, it's horrible. And I said this before when we were in Matthew 14, you could make an insane reality TV show about the Herods. It would be messed up. Jersey Shore got nothing on them. I mean, it is just, it's insane the stories that, that are in there and, 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 and we can learn from them. But John the Baptist was said, you are committing adultery. Uh, this is not right. You are not right to be married together. And as a result of that, when um, Herodias had the opportunity because King Herod promised her daughter, um, King Herod promised her daughter that he would grant her any wish because of a dance that uh, he liked, um, she asked for John the Baptist's head um, uh, by being coached by her mom, Herodias. So as a result, King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. Specifically because of this perspective on marriage, which was the uh, Shammai school of thought that uh, you, you cannot divorce your wife uh, for any and every reason. Uh, there, it needs to be a very, very, very um, big reason, which adultery is one of the ones that's listed, unfaithfulness that's listed. And so John the Baptist was beheaded because of this belief. So the Pharisees, one, they're giving him a false dilemma and saying, okay, is it the Hillel or is it the Shammai school of thought? It's got to be one or the other. Which is it, Jesus? Uh, and I do believe they're hoping that if he does say that the Hillel, excuse me, the Shammai perspective is the correct one, that then Herod Antipas will hear this and uh, Jesus will suffer the same fate as John the Baptist, which is uh, beheading. Um, so, and I actually want to, to read just a little bit from Expositor's Bible Commentary. Uh, I use this for all of my studies. Um, it's a great reference. And I'm actually going to read uh, the section from Mark, their commentary on Mark, because Mark has this story as well as Matthew. Um, the question posed by the Pharisees was not a sincere one. They were testing him, trying to catch him in some statement about a subject on which they themselves had no agreement. And then to use it against him, Jesus was in Herod Antipas' territory, the ruler who had put John the Baptist to death because John had denounced Antipas' marriage to Herodias. Perhaps the Pharisees hoped that Jesus, by his statements on marriage and divorce, would get himself into trouble with Antipas and would suffer the same cruel fate as John the Baptist. On the question of the lawfulness of divorce, there was generally unanimity among the Jews. Divorce was allowed. The real difference of opinion centered in the grounds for divorce, as cited in Deuteronomy 24.1. You can uh, jot that down, Deuteronomy 24.1. Um, Moses talks about uh, reasons why divorce is allowed. 
The crucial words are something indecent is the specific thing that's said there in Deuteronomy 24.1. And the problem was is they had different interpretations. What did that include? The school of the Shammai, uh, the stricter of the schools, understood these words to mean something morally indecent, in particular adultery. The school of Halil interpreted the words much more freely. Just about anything in a wife that a husband did not find to his liking was suitable grounds for divorce, even if she burned his food. So where did Jesus stand on this? That was the question. So what does Jesus do in response? And I love this about Jesus is that when he's given a false uh, dilemma, a dilemma where you're given two choices and you say, okay, it's got to be A or B. Jesus says, no, no. And I love that. Um, and that, that could be a lesson for us is that oftentimes people will give you an argument and say, oh, it's got to be A or B. No, not necessarily. Um, so let's continue on uh, Matthew 19, 4. This is Jesus' response. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24 is what uh, Jesus is referencing there. Jesus 2.24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command, I love that they say command, Moses commanded that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus is very much taking the Shammai school of thought on this and the biblical perspective is that marriage is binding. Wedlock is a padlock. I like that term. Wedlock is a padlock. So I want to just reference real quick, um, just read the few notes that they have here. Moses' permission to divorce was an accommodation to human weakness. It was an attempt to bring some sort of order in a society that disregarded God's standards. But that is not what God intended in marriage. His original design in creating man and woman was that marriage should be an unbroken lifelong union. Marriage was not a temporary convenience that could be terminated at will. Marriage is arguably the most difficult thing that we will do. Personally, uh, I've done a couple Ironman races. Um, and for those who, who aren't familiar, an Ironman is swimming 2.4 miles in the ocean. Fall, well, it doesn't have to be in the ocean, in the open water, a lake or, or an ocean. Uh, followed by biking 112 miles. And then as soon as you finish that, you run a marathon, 26 plus miles. That's easier. That's far easier than marriage. Why? Why is marriage so difficult? Why is divorce so prolific? Why is this the case? Because we are so selfish. As, as beings, as human beings, we are born in sin. And anybody who tells me that that's not the case, I challenge that. And, and the, the easiest way I can prove that we're born sinful uh, is to look at a toddler, a two-year-old. 
Watch a two-year-old who's taken a cookie when he's not supposed to, and then listen to the lies that, that he will say. And it's amazing to me how bad they are at lying and being deceitful. But uh, as I said, I think last week, I've got 11 nieces and nephews, and watching them grow up when they are little, 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 tiny, it amazes me how naturally they, they try to lie and try to deceive mom and dad for their own selfish benefit. And they're horrible at it, which is what makes it hilarious to see when they're trying to lie. But they need to be taught to be honest. They need to be taught how to be good. But we naturally know how to worry about ourselves. We are very, very selfish. And that's one of the reasons why marriage is so, that's the main reason why marriage is so difficult, is that if you are in any relationship and all that you worry about is getting yours, you're gonna fight and you're gonna fight a lot because you're gonna be fighting about getting yours, getting what you want. Um, my wife and I have been married for um, 17 and a half years. It'll be 18 years in June. We've been together for 20. Um, and married for 17 and a half, uh, and, and I absolutely love my wife. And it is amazing, absolutely amazing to me. I remember hearing that I had no idea what love was when I was engaged. And I was like, yeah, I do. I wanna spend the rest of my life with this woman. She's amazing, she is awesome. And then I thought at year five, uh, and then again year at 10 and year 15, I would say, the past three years have been the best for my wife and I. And I think the, the sole reason for that is that both of us put Christ centered in our lives, that that is the most important thing before the other person. So uh, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here. Uh, oh, right, I'm remembering why uh, I was explaining this. Celicia, that's my wife's name, she got something really cute a couple years ago. I don't know how long ago. It was just a little um, wooden, um, self-standing kind of plaque thing that's on a rustic piece of wood that, that has some uh, computer-carved text in it. And it said, marriage is like a deck of cards. At the beginning, all you need are two hearts. But at the end, you're looking for a club and a spade. And I love that. It's hilarious. I, I love that. Because you look at the knock him over the head and kill him and then bury him, uh, which is grotesque and horrible, but marriage is hard because we are so selfish. So what we're going to do today is we will finish this chunk on Matthew 19. I'm not going to completely finish Matthew 19. I'm going to stop before uh, we go on to the next segment, and I'm actually going to wrap in Matthew 20 and the second half of Matthew 19 in one talk, and we're going to spend the rest of this talk today talking about Christian marriage and what God calls us to do as husbands and what God calls us to do as wives. This is an ideal talk to be listening to with your spouse, watching or listening, because I'm going to say some very harsh things for the guys and some harsh things for the girls. And I think that it's good for both sides to hear the sides of what God has to say. This isn't me. This is God, what God has to say to married couples. So um, wedlock is a padlock. Write that down. Wedlock is a padlock. On the perspective of marriage, if your house is your marriage relationship, and when you got married, you entered that house, and on the outside of the house, you put a big old master lock padlock, chunk, chunk, on that door. 
So you can't get out. If your perspective on marriage is that this is binding until one of us dies, then when the fire, which will spark, will happen in your relationship, guaranteed there will be fires that happen in your house, you are gonna do everything you possibly can to put that fire out. Why? Because you can't escape the house. So if the whole house is gonna burn down, as soon as that, that fire starts, no matter how big it is, you're gonna pay attention to it because you know if you don't, this is gonna get out of control. If your perspective on marriage, uh, and using that door analogy, is uh, kind of like a restaurant where it's those double doors where you can come and go as you please, and they go Well, then as soon as there's a fire, you're not gonna deal with it for one, but then once the fire gets so big that it's consuming the house, just leave. It's easier just to leave. So that's why it's very important that that statement, wedlock is a padlock. Um, marriage is not something that you should go into lightly, and it is something that is a commitment for life. Biblical Christian marriage. So uh, we're gonna dig into the scripture and, and look at this. But before I, I dig into verses, I'm gonna pull up quite a few different verses. There are four reasons why I believe, and these are mine, these are four things that I came up with, of reasons why God created and designed marriage. The first one is the, the, the most obvious to me by far, enjoyment. God, it's a very easy argument to make. God wants us to be happy. This thing that he has created, the, the earth uh, existence, Food, our enjoyment of food, beer. I mean, there's so many amazing, awesome things that God has created for us. And marriage, I think, is by far the highest of those. That, that marriage is designed for our enjoyment, for our fun. It is not punishment. It is not uh, torture. It is for our enjoyment. Um, and the scripture that I want to uh, reference there is uh, the Song of Solomon. Chapter four, I'm not gonna read it. Um, traditionally, the Song of Solomon um, was not allowed to be read to Jewish boys under the age of 12 until you had your uh, uh, bar mitzvah and became a man, you weren't allowed to read it. The Song of Solomon is a very um, descript poem uh, that uh, the author writes about his wife uh, and his enjoyment of her body on their wedding night. Um, it, it's, it's rated R and beyond. Um, but the Bible has that in it because God did design sex for our enjoyment and relationships and companionship for our enjoyment. The second reason uh, that, that I came up with was for strengthening us, both as individuals but also as a team. A cord of three strands is not easily broken, uh, is the verse. And let's actually open that up. We'll open up to Ecclesiastes 4.9. So this is uh, in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. So open up to that, 4.9. And you've no doubt heard this before. This is a verse that uh, I often hear at weddings. I'm going to share some verses with you today that I hear at weddings. I'm also going to share some that they never read at weddings. Um, and you'll understand why. So Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have good return on their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will, be, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. 
a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What is the uh, writer of Ecclesiastes saying here? The cord of three strands. If you take two lines and you weave them together, it's very easy to break that. But for some reason, when you add a third in and you braid it together, it's incredibly strong and that's where you get a rope. It's incredibly strong. And that analogy holds true for us today. And so you have the husband and you have the wife. The third strand that needs to be woven in to make that bond, to make that really, really tight rope that can hold a lot of weight is Christ. Christ is called to be the center of our lives. And the, the words I'm going to have to say to the guys and to the girls, I do not think is possible to follow them without having a relationship with God. And the reason being is, is that it's impossible, in fact, um, to do how, what we are called to do for our spouses. But I do believe that if you put Christ first and that you follow Jesus, he can help you. And through him and through that relationship, you can do the things that Christ calls us to do in being a good husband and a good wife, which I'll get to that in a second. I got two more uh, um, reasons why God created marriage. The, the third reason is procreation. Now, that's the obvious one, but there's also with that the family, the family dynamic, uh, father, mother, uh, and kids growing up in a secure household where they have a mom and dad that love each other. There's no question whatsoever, statistics prove it over and over again, that kids that grow up in a household in which the mom and the dad have a very healthy and loving relationship, those kids grow up more grounded and stronger and their perspective on reality is far more uh, uh, strong. Um, they are the most prone to success and they are also the most prone to be good spouses when they in turn get married later on in life. So I do believe that the institution of marriage was created by God for the, the, the spreading of his kingdom uh, and to create strong family dynamics in that. And the fourth reason uh, is to model the relationship that Christ has with the church. The church being believers. I don't care if you're Methodist, uh, uh, Presbyterian, Catholic. Um, if you believe, or evangelical, if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're part of the church. I don't care what denomination you're in. If you believe in God and believe that, that Christ died for your sins, Lutheran, whatever, you're part of the church. And the church in the Bible is called the bride of Christ, and Christ is the groom. The marriage feast of the lamb is the wedding celebration that actually is the tribulation period, is the marriage feast of the lamb, um, which actually I'm very excited about. Coming up, Matthew 24, the Pharisees ask Jesus, what will be the signs of the times of the end of the world? And so when I hit Matthew 24, which is in... Uh, four or five weeks, I'm going to take that entire study and I'm going to talk about um, eschatology, which is a fancy word of, uh, uh, for the end times. What does the Bible say about the end of the world? We're going to talk about the Antichrist. We're going to talk about uh, the tribulation, about the great tribulation, about the abomination of desolation, uh, about the millennial kingdom, Christ's second coming, um, 
the rapture of the church, all of those things we're going to talk about, and the signs of the times. Um, and we are without a doubt living in the last days. I very strongly believe that um, uh, the rapture of the church could happen today. There, there's nothing in the prophetic timeline that needs to take place um, before that happens. But that is for a couple more weeks, and I'm very excited for that talk. But similar to that talk, this talk, I, I, you know, we're Matthew 19, we're talking about marriage. So uh, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a tangent now, and I'm going to look at what does the Bible have to say to men and to women about being good spouses in a Christian marriage. So this is the stuff that I think would be good for you to be with your spouse on. You can listen to it on your own and then have them listen to it, but I think it will be beneficial and fun, actually, to listen to with your spouse sitting next to you because you're going to get a lot of head nods and elbows as I, as I go through this stuff because both sides will be able to relate to what the other has to say, the other perspective. Okay, marriage is hard. Yes, we talked about that. Um, God's instruction for successful marriage. Yes. Okay, so we are going to be going specifically through Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. So why don't you open up to Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And um, he's got some words to say to both the ladies as well as the guys. And I know I'm going to piss off both groups. It's not me. What Paul says, and it's uh, Paul's writing is the inspired word of God. This is God to us. But just so the ladies don't get too pissed off at me when I get to them, I'm going to actually start with the guys because I do believe God's calling for Christian men is far more difficult and uh, uh, far worse of a call. Difficult. Both are, are very, very difficult. But um, we're going to pick it up on um, Ephesians 525. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That's easy. That's an easy one. That's great. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. That's the Bible, the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24 again. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. We'll get to you ladies in a second. Uh, so for the guys, there's two main things that I want to point out for the guys. Okay. As a uh, wedding photographer and a portrait photographer, um, I'm taking photos of both men and women constantly. And the thing that's interesting, and I'm stereotyping here, I am generalizing, and just to give this disclaimer, throughout this entire talk, I am going to be generalizing. Generally speaking, generally speaking, women are very picky about how they look. And more often than not, they see their faults far more than they see their strengths. 
And one of the things that, one of the things that's frustrating to any photographer will relate to this is that when you have this beautiful bride and you show her a photo that looks amazing that you captured and she immediately gravitates to her faults. She just can't see how beautiful she is. I tried to explain this to my wife once, um, that when she is happy and truly in a good mood, she could be wearing pajamas. Her hair could be in a massive fro. Her makeup could be all smeared from the night before or wearing none. Um, she could have just gotten back from a run and be sweaty and nasty. But if she's in a good mood and happy, she is the most beautiful woman in the world because she's glowing, she's radiant. And I would argue this, is that when you know without question that your value as an individual is being a child of a God, the radiance that comes from you is beauty that everyone will see. And I know that sounds cheesy, but unfortunately there are a lot of women who nitpick like crazy themselves because they think their value comes in their looks. And the greatest thing they could do to increase their beauty is acknowledge and realize that they are a amazing child of God and that they are gorgeous. Men do not need to be told this. Men, when, I mean, I have, it's so incredibly rare to have a guy look at a photo of himself and be like, oh my gosh, look at my wrinkles, they're horrible. No, guys look at a photo and they're like, I look good, that's awesome. Guys will stand in front of a mirror and see a superhero. We flex in front of the freaking mirror. We see Superman, we see Batman when we look in the mirror. When we look at ourselves and our bodies, even if we got a pot belly, we sucked that pot belly in, puffed up our chest and be like, yeah, I still got it, I'm good. Women don't, are not that way, guys are. So the, the two things that I wanna point out, uh, from this verse in particular, is that men, you are called to love your wives more than you love your own body. Um, I was relating to, to a friend actually just this morning talking about, there's a gym in Albany, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but um, I went there to work out with a friend um, it was last year sometime, but there were bodybuilders. Like this was a bodybuilding gym. This was not the YMCA. Uh, this was a bodybuilders gym. And there are mirrors everywhere. The, every wall is covered with mirrors. And when you walked in, you just saw all of these guys just like, just staring at themselves as they're pumping this iron, looking at their biceps and like, yeah. Guys, you are called to love your wives and lift them up and treat them better than you treat your own body. That's the easy one. The next one that, that Christ calls us to do is to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So what does that mean? What did Christ do for the church, the believers? Okay, that Superman that you think that you are, think about this for a second, God, which some guys out there do consider themselves to be gods, little g, but still, God, all-powerful, the most powerful entity in the universe, created everything, comes down to earth as a humble man, not, not as uh, into a wealthy family, uh, but into a poor, poor family um, in the middle of nowhere, 
and has a very, very meek life and then completely devotes his life to his church, then the last three years of his life literally is spending every waking moment nurturing and building up his wife, the church, and then what happens? He's killed. Why? Did he deserve this? No, he's killed for the punishment that his wife, the church, deserves in order to free his wife. He goes to the cross for a punishment that he doesn't deserve and is tortured to death and dies. Guys, that's what we're called to do. It's simple, right? It's easy, right? No, you are called to, to be as Christ is to the church and completely die to yourself, to be tortured for her, to, to, to go to the cross for her. That's the analogy that we're being given here. I, want, I hope you guys understand this. The calling that a Christian man has on his life is incredibly hard and impossible, I would say. But what I want to do to paint the reality of what this actually looks like, I am going to paint a picture. And this picture uh, is an average day in the life of a married couple. So you have husband and you have wife. Um, this analogy will work regardless if you have kids, if the wife in this situation is a full-time uh, uh, working, uh, full-time at home, or mixed in between, working part-time, taking care of kids, um, whatever, all of these analogies work. Okay, you are at work and you usually get home at five. You have a horrible day and your boss is belittling you and you get in trouble for something and you gotta stay late. Usually you're home at five, but you don't get out until 7.45. And you come home, you are in a horrible mood because your boss is an ass and he's belittling you and you just wanna quit this job. You can't believe you're dealing with this BS every day, day in and day out, and you get home and your wife is in a mood. She is mad, she's grumpy, she's complaining about something you don't know, you're not paying attention. You sit down and all you want is a beer. There's crap beer in the fridge. There's nothing there. You can't have the beer that you wanted to have. Uh, and then she puts this food in front of you that is, uh, it's all dried out. It's clearly been sitting there and you get so angry, you're like, what is this? and she storms off, she doesn't even eat with you, um, and, and you're sitting there just like fuming, fuming, absolutely fuming, and then she comes back and she's clearly upset and she sits down with you because she wants to finish her meal, and she starts talking about her day. She tries to make it like, she, she tries to make it better, let's say, and put a Band-Aid over the, the artery wound that's spurting blood everywhere, and then in the middle of her talking, you're not paying attention to her, you realize the Seahawks are playing. And as every good Christian man, you're a Seahawks fan. So you realize that, that, oh my gosh, this is a big game. And I'm listening to her yak on when I want to be watching this game. So you interrupt her and you tell her, I'm painting this horrible picture of a guy, by the way, but I, I want to paint this picture of the worst case scenario and then I'll paint the way it should be. So you interrupt her and you tell her, I'm sorry, Seahawks are playing. I got to watch this game. Love you, babe. Thanks for this. You toss the food, what's left of it, uh, in the fridge, uh, and then you grab uh, and uh, you know some leftover, something like that, and you go downstairs, totally absent, and you're watching the game. So now you're watching the game, and you're totally into it. And your wife comes down the stairs, 
and she's talking to you. She's yakking about something. She's nagging you about something. You don't know, but you know the only way that she'll leave you alone is if you acknowledge her. So you go, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, sure, yes, yes. What? Why would you do that? You should have thrown it. Oh my gosh, why would you make that play? That is a horrible play. And she walks back up the stairs. So that evening, you crash into bed, exhausted, and you go back and go back to the grind again. You come home, you're home at 5.30. Your wife is livid, absolutely livid. And she greets you, greets you, and says, did you forget something? And you're like, what? Last night, I asked you to pick something up on the way home. When did you ask me that? I don't remember you asking me that. I specifically asked you to pick something up. Why didn't you pick something up? It's a fun analogy, right? It's a fun picture. So now let's go back and paint this picture of how the Christian man following what Ephesians calls us to do. It's a hard day at work. Your boss is belittling you. You hate this job and you're going to be late. But you're putting your wife first. You know she's gonna be cooking a meal and you're usually home at five. So you send her a text message, you're communicating, and you say to her, I'm having a horrible day, I'm gonna be late, sorry. Go ahead and eat without me. You're putting her first, she doesn't have to wait for you. So then uh, you, you get out at 7.45, same thing. Again, you're thinking of your wife. And you text her and you say, I am in a horrible mood. I am sorry. I had an awful day. I'm on my way home. You get home. The house is clean. Tidied up. There's music playing. Your favorite beer is sitting there next to this, your favorite meal. It's amazing. It's this awesome meal. And she, she just pulls it out of the oven and plops it down. She hands you your beer and she goes, Tell me about your day. That's awful that you had a rough day. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So you sit and you're talking and then she starts talking about her day. And you do something that's called active listening as she's telling you about her day. She's talking about something and you look at her in the eyes. You're making eye contact. You don't have your phone. You don't have your iPad. You don't have the newspaper. You don't have the TV on in the background. You're actively listening to her. Why? Because she is the most important thing in the world to you right now. And you're listening to her and you're doing something very interesting. You're engaging and you are asking questions. So you're not solving the problem. She's, she's complaining about something. She's, she's venting about something that happened to her that day. And you're not trying to solve it. You're asking questions. Wow, that's horrible. How did that make you feel? Wow, uh, is there anything I can do? Um, what are you going to do about this? What can I do? That must have been tough. And, and you're, you're asking leading questions to get her to keep talking about whatever's going on in her mind. Why? Because you're putting her first. But then... As a good Christian, you're a Seahawks fan, and the Seahawks are playing, and you know that game just started 15 minutes ago. And you really wanna go watch that game, but you wanna listen to her. And you've actually stopped listening to her because your mind is not there. You're looking at her, and you know you're not being fair to her, but you're nodding and you're going along, but meanwhile, you're thinking about the game, and you, you say, babe, I love you, this meal was amazing. A big game for the Seahawks is on, um, but you are more important, I would love to go and watch the game. Can, can you finish telling me about this? 
tomorrow or tonight so that I can go watch the game. But if not, if this is important, I'm all yours. And she laughs and she says, no, absolutely, go enjoy the game. And she hands you another of your favorite beers to go take down and enjoy while you're watching the game. This is great, this is great, right? So you go down and you're watching the game. She comes down and she starts talking to you and like a good husband, you mute the television and you do that active listening thing again where you look at her in the eyes and then she asks you to do something and to make sure that she knows that you're listening but also to make sure that you know you're listening, you repeat back. You would like me to pick up our son after work tomorrow. Yes, I would be happy to pick up our son after work tomorrow. In fact, I'm gonna put it in my uh, phone right now. Pick up son on way home from work. You then watch the game. Why would you do that? You should have thrown it. You enjoy the game. You lightly go upstairs and quietly get into bed because you do not want to wake your wife. And the next day, you pick your son up on your way home from work and don't forget to do that. This is a fun analogy that I use to compare. Marriage is built on every small, little, tiny detail. And husbands, you are called to die to yourselves and put your wife first. When you put her first, what happens is she is nurtured. She uh, is safe. She knows that her needs are met. And what's going to happen is you are building her up and allowing her to commune with Christ and to be in a relationship with God and to become, you are enabling her to be able to become the most amazing woman that God wants her to be. And selfishly, guys, when you do this, you are going to have the best wife you can possibly have. Because what's gonna end up happening is the wife is gonna turn around and take care of you because you are taking care of her first. And this is a very important part it has to start with the guys. Guys, you have to be the one that makes the first move. If you are in a hard spot in your relationship, you have to be the first one who makes the move down this path. You are the one who must die to yourself first so that your wife, in turn, will see that you do love her and that you do want her to be happy and you are putting her first. So now that I have... Um, belittled the guys, and I apologize if that ana of that if that story. Um, hopefully, that story doesn't ring too too close to home. The first analogy, and more like the second. But in every small little thing that you do, guys, put your wives first. In every little tiny detail, if you're supposed to go out and hang out with the guys. Uh, some evening and your wife had a horrible day and something really really bad has happened, you say to her. I'm here for you. Do you want me to order takeout? What do you want? Do you want me to go get you a pint of ice cream? What do you want? Put her first. She's gonna feel so loved that she can say, no, I'm fine. Go enjoy your time with the guys. Okay, so now for the ladies. This is where the ladies who have been loving, no doubt, every word that I've said, they've been like, preach it, Dave, say it. Yes, amen. Now you ladies might not be so pleased with me. What does the Apostle Paul have to say to the ladies? What does God have to say to the ladies? We are on Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit. Ooh, I might have lost some of you right there. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
No doubt there are some ladies out there right now that are listening to this and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up. You might say, how out of date, how chauvinist, how old school. Uh, I mean, this is an example of how the Bible is totally out of tune with reality. Men and women's rights are equal. We need to be treated equally. You very much enjoyed what I said about the men, and you were all in agreement for that. But now when it's time for the harsh words for you, well, that's not equality, right? No, the point here is it is equality. It is completely equal. Both sides are called to die to themselves. And that is what we're talking about here for the women in submitting. This is not talking about um, being a servant to your husband and, and letting him beat you or be in a abusive, either verbal or physical relationship. This is not talking about being weak. This is talking about in strength submitting to your husband. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, I struggle with this one. I am not the best person to be giving advice to women on how to submit. I had a conversation with my wife uh, about this, and there were a couple different things that, that she brought up that we talked about. And the most fundamental thing that you can do in submitting to your husband is to build him up. Be a cheerleader. When he's had a rough day, support him. Do what needs to be done to show your husband respect. I said that before when we were on, uh, uh, at the end of Ephesians 5. Um, each of one of you must uh, love his wife and he loves as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Women, one of the things that, that men need, as much as you need nourishment, and love, men need respect. And respect is found in the little tiny details. If your husband screws up, don't belittle him. Don't uh, nag at every little detail. When are you gonna fix this thing? You said you're gonna fix this thing, now fix this thing. Am I gonna have to call somebody to fix it for you? That is degrading your husband. You're deflating him. And what that's going to create in your husband is a man who is angry and is, is bitter and who demands the respect. He needs to earn the respect. But it's the little tiny things that you do to submit to him. If you're having a heated debate, let's say, I, I don't even have an analogy or an example, um, but let's just say you're deciding between two things. You want to do A, he wants to do X. Obviously, A is the better choice. Both the man and the woman watching right now can acknowledge A is probably the better choice. But still, you're deciding between doing A and X. He says he wants to do X, and you immediately say, no, we're going to do A. He then digs his feet in and says, no, X is what we're going to do, and he is adamant on it. And now you guys are having a blown-up, all-out fight over what? It's probably something small, but you are adamant on that, and he is adamant on that, and now he is ready for a fight. Guys are competitive, as many women are as well, but he is, his fists are up. Hopefully, not literally, but figuratively, he's dug his heels in. The call to submit. Imagine in that argument of A and X, 
you say you want to do A, and he says, I want to do X. And you say, okay, um, X, I, I can understand why you want to do X. I understand your perspective, and I can see how X is, uh, could be a good option. In my heart, I feel like A is the way that we should go. Uh, I really feel like that's the thing we should do, but I submit the choice to you. What you did right there is pop. You took a needle and you popped that angry bubble. That guy is gonna be like on his haunches and gonna be like, wait, I'm ready for a fight. She's gonna fight me. Wait, what? What did you just say? You understood my perspective on X. You related to me on the perspective of X. You gave me the reason why you wanted to do A, and then you gave me the choice. A moron would choose X in that situation. But what's gonna happen is that the husband is gonna be pulled back and allowed the ability to make the choice based on what is best for the family and likely what he's gonna choose is A. Why? Because you haven't questioned his ego or his pride. You have said, you know what? I strongly believe this, but you know what? I'm gonna let you make that decision. And in doing that, the probability is, is that he is going to let up and relax, and unless it is absolutely in his mind critical that they do X for the future of the relationship, and chances are, if he does make that decision, he will discover that it was the wrong choice and that he really should have just listened to you from the very beginning and chosen A. A smart man will listen to his wife, but still, that is an example of submitting. The other thing that I wanna talk about is sex. Woohoo! This is a fun talk, right? So we're gonna talk about sex, but how I'm gonna talk about sex is rather than saying sex over and over again, I'm talking, I'm gonna say working out and that uh, your spouse is your workout partner. So women, I am going to be as blunt as I can with you and take it as it is. Men and women, generally speaking, are different in the amount of exercise that they need. Men, more often than not, need more exercise than women do. If at home the husband is receiving regular exercise and fun with his spouse, his designated workout partner, then when he goes out into the world, when he sees over and over and over, everywhere. There are workout gyms everywhere. There are at every coffee shop, at every restaurant, at every work meeting. There is a potential new workout partner. There are people everywhere who come up and say, hey, they don't say it blatantly, but they're basically saying, hey, how's it going? Do you wanna uh, have a little workout partner session with me on the side? The man who, or spouse I should say, because this is generally speaking, who regularly has routine uh, workout sessions with his work or her workout partner is in a position of strength so that when that potential other workout partner comes up, there's no need for it because they're physically fit. The spouse is taken care of, the needs are met. So therefore, they are in a perspective of strength. I'm gonna be honest with you right now. From my own personal perspective, the longer the period of time at which I've exercised, the more and more 
enticing and alluring every single workout opportunity is. Men, generally speaking, are visual and physical creatures. I don't think that this is a news flash to you. And the internet is full, absolutely packed full with so much propaganda that tells you that you need to work out constantly every single day. And heck, you don't even need a workout partner to work out. You can work out on your own. And here is an endless supply of visual stimulating workout material. I hope you understand that I am not talking about physically working out right now. And I have a verse to back this up. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. So let's flip over to this. This is also one that likely you are not um, going to see um, at a marriage ceremony. <clears throat> okay, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. The Bible is specifically telling you to have sex right here. I hope you understand that. The Bible is saying, get it on, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's talking about the one situation. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I could go down this tangent and I could, I, there's a lot of scripture that can support this. Sex is designed as an amazing thing that happens within the confines of marriage and that's where it's supposed to be kept. This is not saying go and get it on with anybody and everybody. This is saying specifically between a man and a wife that we are not to hold back um, from each other. I have friends who, um, it, it's very rare. And the guy is in a very, very difficult position because of it. Um, and, and that's a very tough thing. And so for you women out there that um, do not enjoy exercise as much as your male counterparts. Understand that you uh, strengthen your husband and his um, armor to be able to stand up against Satan and all of the temptations that are out there. There's no question for me, and I'm assuming this is the case for most guys, our weakest link by far is lust. For me, that is the case. Uh, if Satan were to attack me with anything, my weakest armor is lust. But when my wife and I are in a great spot in our relationship, she's putting me first, I'm putting her first, it's an easy defeat uh, to defeat Satan in that temptation. So um, one verse that I do want to read that I skipped over um, that talks about how husbands and wives are called to submit and to put the other person first um, is there's two different verses that I want to read. Ephesians is what we've been going through um, in, in talking about this. The, the Ephesians, uh, the 
uh, when we talk about women submit uh, and husbands be like Christ and give yourself up for your wife. Verse 21, we skipped over. And we skipped over verse 21. And I went straight to 25 to talk about the husbands. And then I went to 22 to talk to the wives. But now, verse 21, and this is the most important one. This is before we hit on what wives are called to do in submission and husbands are called to do. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are called both, husbands and wives, to submit to each other as Christ, as we submit to Christ. Now I'm going to go to the most uh, well-known Bible verse um, that is said at weddings. And anybody who uh, is in the wedding industry uh, knows this one. 1 Corinthians 13. All of chapter 13, this is almost uh, every single wedding I'm at. Uh, vocationally, as most of you know, I'm a wedding photographer. I've been over 800 weddings. Um, but this is a common verse, a, a passage. And uh, I'm wrapping up. I'm coming to a conclusion. So hang with me. I still have some more insight and wisdom to depart from this. you got to hear this. So flip over to Corinthians uh, 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, it's talking about the end of the world, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, this is talking about the end, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Phenomenal passage. And that right there is what each of us is called to do for our spouse. You are called to give 100%, not 50-50. It's not like the husband should give 50 and the wife should give 50. No, you are called to give 100 to put that spouse first. And in doing so, you are building that spouse up to be able to be the best person they can be, and they in turn will put you first. Have, make it a competition to put the other person first. A fun little exercise, Corinthians 13, replace every time the word love is in there, replace it with Jesus. And every time you see the word it, replace it with he. And go back and read it and read what it says. I'm just going to read a chunk. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. 
He is not proud. He, is, he uh, does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. That's an important thing to note. When we have Jesus, the Bible specifically says that God completely forgets our sin. And he puts our sin as far as the east is from the west. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And that, men, again, is what we are called to be. It's profound stuff that I'm saying. It's very, it's a hard thing to do. But this is the call for a Christian marriage. Now the question comes up, and there's Bible passages for this, is what if your spouse is not a Christian? Should you divorce them? Or if you're in a relationship uh, and one member's a Christian and the other one's not. I'd be careful of that. If you aren't married yet, I would be very, very cautious of that. One of two things is going to happen. The hopeful is, is that that person will change and open their hearts and have a relationship with God. But... If now, when you are dating, this person isn't going with you to church, the probability of them going to church with you when you're married is very minimal. Why? Because you put your best foot forward when you're dating. But when you're married, that's when, when the facade comes off and the true character comes out. So one of two things is going to happen. The other thing that's going to happen is, is that you're going to get married and you're going to walk away from your faith because it's incredibly hard to, to live a life where one of you believes one thing and the other believes another. That's what the Bible calls being unequally yoked. And what that does in the analogy of an oxen that uses a yoke and you have two oxen, one ox is really strong and the other one is weak, the weak one will go lame and die because of that. In marriage, though, there is scripture that supports that you should actually stay married so long as you are in a safe environment and that um, your husband or your spouse, uh, if you are safe and you are in a, an okay circumstance, the Bible does say that we are called to stay married in that environment. And the reason being is because you do have impact on your spouse and you shouldn't divorce them over that. And that you are called in both situations, in both analogies, pray. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your significant other. Um, okay, so now I could keep going on this tangent. Um, there's so much to go over on this, but I want to wrap up because we've already done likely the longest study I have done yet to date. So let's finish this chunk. So we've actually only gotten to uh, the end of nine um, in which, um, so now the, dis the disciples, imagine that the disciples have just heard everything that I've just said. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. I love that. The disciples actually say, if it's that hard, we shouldn't get married. And Jesus responds, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. 
This is kind of a weird passage. It's eunuchs. What does that mean? For the purpose of this, I'm just going to say uh, marriage. Not in your ability to actually have sex, but simply marriage. Uh, Catholic priests being celibate is one of the examples that they give is, is that some choose to be like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those are people who choose not to get married and they choose instead to devote themselves to God. Well, the Apostle Paul has some strong words for that. He actually boasts and says, I would that everyone be like me. And what is he saying? Paul is saying not married. But lest you should sin, it is better for you to be married than to be thrown in the pit of hell. So what he's saying there is, is that if you can stand it, devoting your life to God and not getting married is a great thing and a great service. But the probability... You're going to lust and you're going to screw up massively. Look at all of the turmoil in the Catholic Church when it comes to molestation and horrible things that priests have done because they're deprived and they're sinning. So that's what he's talking about here. This call on us is a big one. It is a tough one to take. But if you follow God's call for a Christian marriage, I guarantee you, you are going to be strengthened in a way that you have no concept of. You are going to be put into a perspective where you are able to be that man or that woman that God wants you to be. And you have to, to, to put the other person first in order to be able to do that. And again, I say this to the guys. If you're at deadlock with your spouse, I'm not going to forgive her because of blah, 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 blah. She did this. It has to start with the guys. Men, you must die to yourself and put her first. And women, you must submit to your husbands and not belittle them, but lift them up. And the most important thing with this whole piece is that both of you make time for God and you put God as the foundation of your relationship. Because when you do that, when you put God first, you are then able to die to yourself because you know even if your spouse dies, God's got you covered. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you for marriage. Thank you that in the Garden of Eden, you saw Adam and you said, this is not good. This is not good for this guy to be on his own. He needs a friend. He needs a partner. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The, the, the largest blessing that I have in my life is my wife. There's no question of that. And I cherish it so much. Thank you. Lord, I pray for myself selfishly that that you would teach me day by day how to die to myself and, and show me in your word how I can be like you in your example of how you died for your church, for your love, for us as believers. Thank you. I pray, Lord, for those marriages that are in turmoil. The house is on fire and there is... is, is absolute destruction all around. That is a very real thing for a lot of people right now in the world, Lord. Comfort them. Come around the husband and the wife in that situation and, and let them know that their worth 
is found in you as a child of God, not in their spouse. Help them to see that the most important thing with the house burning down is their relationship with you because you are the only one that can put out the fire. And that if both the husband and the wife submit to you together with hard work, the three of you can put out that fire together. And afterwards, amazing as it might seem, the house can be stronger because of it. Thank you, Lord, so much for the amazing gift you've given to me and my wife. And thank you for all the gifts you've given to everybody else out there and the spouses. Thank you for the future gifts that spouses will be for those people who aren't yet married. Uh, and thank you so much for those people who choose not to be married. Um, that's an impressive, impressive um, willpower and strength. We love you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that this talk on marriage was very, very beneficial to you. And I hope that I haven't pissed too many people off. But chances are, if you're still listening at this point, you're loving it because those people who would really have been pissed off, they checked out a long time ago. So have a phenomenal week. We'll pick up with Matthew 20 next week. I love you guys. Thank you. Oh, hi, Kinsey.